The following podcast is a Dear Media production. I'm Lexi. I'm Shannon. I'm Tiffany. And this is the 6 and 9 podcast. Family dinners at 6 and pre-drinks are at 9. We're serving laughs, cocktails, and lots of stories we probably shouldn't share. In this multi-generational mother-daughter podcast, nothing is off the table. We're unfiltered, uncensored, and undone. You can catch a new episode of 6 and 9 every Tuesday anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you are invited. I just want to let you all know that this episode contains a lot of content around suicide, loss, and grief. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. Last month was Mental Health Awareness Month, but over here at Looking Up, well, you guys know, we observe mental health awareness on the daily. We have been highlighting strong voices who advocate for mental health awareness, and one voice that is particularly powerful, clear, and inspiring is that of Lily Cornell Silver. She's my guest on today's episode of Looking Up. She's not only the youngest guest on Looking Up to date, but one of the most resilient. She's a mental health advocate and the host of an interview series called Mind Wide Open. She's also the daughter of the late Chris Cornell, lead vocalist and guitarist of Audio Slave and Soundgarden. She launched the show during the pandemic in honor of her late father on his birthday, who she and the rest of the world lost tragically to suicide. She opens up about her struggle with losing loved ones to suicide, her own suicidal ideation, PTSD, anxiety, and depression, and credits so much of her healing and resiliency to being exposed to therapy at a young age and given the tools to really articulate her feelings. Lily is a powerhouse of vulnerability, transparency, and resilience. I just have to say, I was beyond honored to learn a thing or two from her deep wisdom, not just because I am a 90s kid and a huge Chris Cornell fan, but mainly because Lily is truly amazing. The way that we start the Looking Up podcast, for those of you who listen, you know, we start with this little section that I like to call Looking In. And it's just a short series of rapid fire style questions. So whatever comes to mind, no thoughts, too many, no judgments. Um, Just the first thing that comes to mind, is there a book that you have read that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? I would say All About Love by Bell Hooks that like actually, there are a lot of books that change my outlook and change my life very temporarily, (laughs) but all about love, I come back to all the time, all the time. I love that. Okay. And when is the last time that you cried? Oh my God. I cry at least once a day, every day. I think this morning I cried because someone posted on TikTok a clip of the very end of La La Land. Uh, And like, how can that, how does that not make you cry? How would you describe yourself uh, in three words? Hmm. In three words, I feel like resilient is a word I would use to describe myself. Anxious, for sure. Have come to think of that as more of like a, that is definitely a part of me. We're working on that one. And caring. Hmm. I like all those words. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. I would say people think that I'm I mean, not people that know me super well, but even in like social context, people think that I'm like very easygoing and like, I I feel like I put on like a pretty good calm front, but I, you know, mental health and anxiety specifically is something that I'm struggling with like 24 hours a day. So I think that's something that a lot of people wouldn't realize. Like a lot of those moments where where I am really struggling, the people that I'm with don't know. Yeah. The last question I have for you is three things that have brought you joy today. Hmm. I am staying with my best friend in LA right now. So getting to be with her and be in her space has brought me joy today. I finished a homework assignment, which definitely brought me joy. And um, I, she's a little dog. It's like the cutest little dog. Aww. And he brings me joy all the time. Oh, <laughs> that is so sweet. Um, okay, we're just going to jump right in because I read something Perfect. that you 
wrote that I think is just kind of what I would love to focus this entire episode on because I think it's so important. So I I read somewhere and I, I could be butchering the exact way in which you said this, but you said the notion was that you are trying to navigate every day with being a mental health advocate and what that means, but at the same time, going through your own mental health struggles. And I think that's such an important concept. I know for myself, I share all the time. Um, one of the hardest things that that I feel like I go through on a daily level is I'm I'm the optimism doctor, and I'm not the most optimistic person. And I try to really be transparent and share sort of my human experience and journey into the self-worth work that I'm doing and using some of my own tips and tools, which is really difficult um, sometimes. And I think that oftentimes when we're starting to speak about something or speak up for something, I feel like there's a lot of pressure that comes with it that's sort of like, well, then you've already figured it all out. And I think what I gather from you and what I just really respect is, is that you are a mental health advocate doing lots of amazing work to help destigmatize uh, mental illness and mental health in general. And at the same time, on an everyday level, you talk about really going through the thick of it and, and it being an experience of your own. And so I'd love for you to share there whatever comes up. And I just think that the way you said it was so beautiful and so real and transparent. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you talking about your own experience with that as well, because I think it's a pretty ubiquitous one. But when I, I mean, I'm very like new in the field of mental health advocacy. I started uh, my own mental health podcast called Mind Wide Open um, in May of last year. So it's been a little bit over a year. And when I was launching it, I was talking a lot with one of my very close family friends, Laura Lipsky, who's a trauma expert. Um, and she was actually my first guest as well. And she talks about this on the podcast, but it's something that we talked about a lot personally because she, I think a lot of, she said, and this is something that rings so true, is that a lot of people, most people that get into mental health advocacy work or trauma work or psychology or whatever it is, do it because they have a personal connection to the field, whether it's someone that they love or whether it's their own issues that they're wanting to understand better. They're wanting to let others know that they're not alone. So that was something that she'd experienced. And after her first few years working in trauma, she had like a, a nervous break. Like, a you know, she, she pushed herself so hard because trauma was something that she felt so deeply that there was less of that balance of taking care of herself while she's taking care of so many others. So from the beginning, she was really instilling me, like, make sure that you're not pushing yourself to the brink. Make sure that while you're talking about these things and trying to help others, you're also helping yourself and taking care of yourself. So that's something I've been very hyper aware of, but is difficult to do in the sense that you don't always know when those times will be. And especially when, some, as you know, something like a podcast is kind of a job, like it's, you know, it's scheduled and you have your times and you plan your meetings in advance. And but because of the nature of the subject, there are days where it's like, I can't talk about mental health today. I can't talk about my own mental health today. Like it's, it's, I'm not in a headspace where I can go there right now. It's not something that I'm, I'm discovering as I enter more fully into the advocacy space. It's like it is when you have such an intense personal connection that is ongoing, like that's something that shifts and changes and you kind of have to be flexible with yourself and understanding with yourself while also like honoring the commitments that you've made. So that's what I'm learning about right now. (laughs) That makes so much sense. I mean, I think oftentimes when we're talking about quote unquote mental health, it it can feel sort of like, separate and sort of, we have this disassociation to it, but at the core of it, what are we talking about? We're talking about human emotion, which is literally running through us all the time. It's like what makes us alive and tick. And so I think that we can sort of talk about it in this sort of um, intellectual way, but like actually we're all going through whatever we're going through while we talk about it as an advocate or not. And I'd love to hear about your personal mental health journey? What is your relationship to mental health? Where have there been some shifts? Uh, what has been your experience Yeah, in relationship with mental health? Well, this is going to be the whole podcast, so get ready. Good. <laughs> Good. This is, we're going to need some time to unpack this. No, but I, I mean, longish story short, mental health is something that I've 
dealt with my entire life. It's, you know, mental health struggles are genetic on both sides of my family. And I'm in college right now studying psychology. So coming to realize like how much of a role that really plays, but especially the um, intense anxiety and like depression are things that come from my dad's side of my family. And I've been able, I mean, both sides of my family, but specifically my dad. And like, that's something that we could relate on was our mutual experiences, especially like as, as kids and teenagers dealing with this really scary, crippling anxiety and crippling fear. And I was 12 when I had my first panic attack, what I knew to be a panic attack. I definitely had anxiety attacks and I'd had anxiety and a lot of fear as a child, like a very, as a very fearful child. But I remember being 12 and I was with my stepdad and my step-siblings at this restaurant. And I've talked about this in my podcast because it's like, it's, you know, it's one of those things that sticks so strongly. Um, and the server came and he was asking what we wanted. And I looked at him and I was like, I need to go to the hospital. <laughs> he was like, and he's looking at my stepdad. He's looking at me like, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I was like, it's not even, and my stepdad was like, he's fine. It's fine. Go ahead, whatever. But it was just out of nowhere. I had this just flood of like absolute panic, absolute fear, like immediately, like something's wrong with me. There's something wrong with my brain. I you know, have a brain tumor. I have some things happening. I'm going to die. Like I need to go to the hospital. But I was 12 and didn't know what a panic attack was and wasn't able to articulate like a specific reason why I would need to go to the hospital in that moment. And it was something like my stepdad didn't really understand at the time. We've had a lot of really amazing conversations about it in more recent years. And as he's dealt with anxiety and depression, but at the time it was kind of one of those, like, you're fine, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like you're, Mm -hmm. you're good. Like you need to calm down kind of situation. And then from, from there, like from that experience of probably eight months of like constant kind of not constant panic, but constant anxiety and a lot of panic attacks every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of feelings of like, I'm afraid that I'm going to die. I'm afraid that I have a something wrong with my heart. There's something wrong in my brain. And, um, cause I was having like physical symptoms. I was dizzy all the time. I was having really intense chest pain all the time. Like, and I was still going to middle school. I was on the basketball team. Like I was doing all this stuff, but it was just this constant, like, I'm afraid to do anything. And then it was, it wasn't until eight months into that experience that we went to another doctor because my mom's incredible. And, and so she's a single mother and she's who raised me. And we have the privilege of having access to so many resources. And she was so willing to be like, okay, I'm going to find the thing that's going to help you. Um, and there was no stigma, no shame around like, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whatever it is. And we finally ended up at one of like the, you know, the third therapist or third psychologist or whatever that was like, yeah, this is a panic issue. Like this isn't because I was going to doctors that were looking at my brain and like, I got an EKG and all this stuff. And I'm like, nothing wrong, nothing wrong, nothing wrong. Like sometimes you can feel weird during puberty, you know, I was like, this is not a puberty thing. Like there's something wrong, really wrong. And finally, yeah, this, this psychologist was like, this is panic. Like you're, you're in fight or flight, you're panicking and panic can create all these physical symptoms. And that was like eight months of my life that I think about, you know, I was literally 12, like, and everyone else was so concerned about like the school dance and like all this stuff. And I I was every day, like, am I gonna die like I'm, af- I'm so afraid of dying and not to say that other 12 year olds don't have those kinds of experiences but it just felt so disproportionate to what I was like quote-unquote supposed to be doing and right. supposed to be feeling and then not having any understanding of why I was feeling that way was so intense so that was, that was my 12th year <laughs> wow. but then to really speed it up to speed it up I lost one of my close friends in high school um, to suicide when we were 15. And then almost exactly a year later, lost my dad to suicide when I was 16. And he was a musician and, and a public figure and beloved by so many. And that public element of grief and public element and curiosity, I think, about his mental health was definitely something that was difficult to navigate. You know, and, and still, like, I, I think when it comes to suicide, there is so much stigma around it, but it's it's also, you know, there's such a there's, it's always a situation where you're left with so many questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that still is like a difficulty. And then a, two months after my dad passed, one of his best friends took his own life as well. So it was like in this one year period, losing three really important people in my life to suicide. And it was a, a few months after that, that like my own suicidal ideation started, which is 
obviously so terrifying and in the moment any kind of logical or rational thought is not going to help me in any way but looking back on that experience and um you know something that I still struggle with but but I've had enough space from it now to be able to say like of course of course I felt that way you know of course that's something that I struggled with because not only was I you know my own mental health issues were really exacerbated and I was trying to like go to college and so steeped in grief but I've a lot of the work that I've done in therapy is like I think a big part of it was was just trying to understand, you know, and trying to have some kind of closeness, especially to my dad. Like, what does it feel like to be in that place to truly not see a way out or be afraid that there is no other way out except for to die? I was 17 at that point. And, you know, it's just like a lot. It's it's all a lot. <laughs> That's kind of the only way I can describe it. And, and, you know, being at the same time, like, okay, now you need to take the SAT and now you need to apply to all these colleges. And so kind of the same thing as I was talking about when I was 12, like it was this total disconnect of experience. Like I can't, I'm living in two different planes right now. And I think that's something that a lot of, especially teenagers struggle with, especially like almost everyone I know that's, I'm 20 now, but almost everyone I know that's my age or, you know, that I knew in high school struggled with mental health in some capacity. And so when that is like this completely all consuming, like for me, it was a moment to moment trying to navigate, like not having a panic attack and being able to show up at school and like being alive and then be like, okay, now you have statistics to do. And like, you know, in English class, you need to write a paper for, and like also a social life and also like after school activities and also be preparing for your future when it comes to college. And I was so, I ended up getting mono because it was like, I'm so exhausted that I can't even function. And that turned into adrenal fatigue and that turned into chronic fatigue. And someone that, as being someone that's already predisposed to, um, you know, depression and depressive symptoms, like that kind of physical taxation really took a toll. And those, those are two things that are so married. Like mm-hmm. you can't really, like physical health and mental health are so intertwined, you know, but that just kind of made it feel like, oh, I'm so, so, so depressed. And I, you know, in in a lot of ways I was struggling with depression, but it was also like, I was physically just so taxed. And that's something that, that I think should be talked about more like in mainstream, you know, just like how married physical and and mental health are. And when people struggle with physical health issues, like that's, there's such a taxation on your mental health and emotional well-being at the same time, as you know, but that is kind of up until more recently. And I took some time off college and that's like a whole thing we can get into too. But long story short, struggled with anxiety my whole life. And then as I had a lot of traumatic losses with suicide, struggled with my own suicidal ideation and then um, a PTSD diagnosis as well, which is kind of like, that's the thing that I put the most energy and effort into now is like kind of healing around that. And honestly, like being getting that diagnosis was something that was like very relieving to me because I was struggling so much with anxiety that I felt like I was just crazy, crazy high on the anxiety spectrum, you know, and, and then having a doctor be like, you're very normal, you know, normal. This is a very typical thing to see on a PTSD scale. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, okay. That's nice to hear, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think you bring up so many like very, very, very important points. And one of them that I definitely want to talk about a lot, especially for teens and and youth, is this idea of how closely married the physical, our physical sensations and bodies are with our mental health. And I think that oftentimes Mm -hmm. people, adults, people that love us, people that have the best intentions are very much more comfortable focusing on the physical. And that's just something that we're like, okay, there's something wrong physically so we can fix it. It's something that seems like it's easier to fix. If if someone has a broken arm, we put it in a cast. You know, we we need to do surgery, we do surgery. And then there's a period of rest and we kind of know what the trajectory looks like. And it's sort of this kind of easier, neat, put it in a box, we can figure it out. Whereas when it comes to mental health, I think that part of the reason that it's so difficult for people is there aren't these like very clear sort of fix it answers a lot of times. A lot of times there are, by the way, but um, a lot of times there aren't. And I think that it, it kind of brings up our 
own discomfort and sort of like if we open that box, then like we have to start talking and feeling about our own mental health. And I think that's something that the only way, like I, I talk about it all the time with how can we actually destigmatize mental health and mental illness. And literally the only way we can is if we all start talking about it. Like just mm-hmm. having normal conversations about it at the dinner table, you know, mm-hmm. like actually sharing our experiences or at least being open to other people's experiences about emotional health. And right. especially, um, you know, after or during traumatic events, but also like not during traumatic events. Um, right. Kind of like what you had mentioned, having anxiety almost for as long as you can remember, but not really figuring it out until it was like kind of really in your face. And it doesn't surprise me that it's like at a restaurant, a waiter is like, would you like fries with that? And you're like, I need to go to the hospital. (laughs) Like, it's like, I'm just like, like imagining, like visualizing this 12 year old that is holding so much. And like you said, like vacillating between like basketball practice and social life and friends and crushes and whatever, homework, and also sheer panic from a panic disorder, anxiety, um, you know, familial um, chemistry, brain chemistry issues uh, that were oftentimes inherited, but also just like teens and and preteens, like we just don't talk about it enough. And so Mm -hmm. I think that that what you're doing, you know, sharing your experience and having a podcast like Mind Wide Open is so important, just like a platform, any platform. It could be like literally having a movie night with friends and eating popcorn, like having family dinner. But like, these are the types of topics that we have to get more comfortable sharing about. That's literally the only way we're going to even put a dent into the stigma that still is being worked on right now, but it's still very evident. The number one reason people don't get help is because of the stigma. And that's just unacceptable because there is a lot of things that we can do. Just like when there's a broken arm, there's a lot that we know, you know, through behavioral health and therapy and sometimes medication. And there's a lot of things that that are out there that a lot of research has been done that can be helpful, but it's like breaking down that barrier of stigma that is just like, come on, it's time. It is time. It's 2021. And if there's one thing that I think this last year plus has been sort of somewhat of a silver lining is that I don't, I think many of us can't hide anymore from our mental health issues. Like it was Mm -hmm. just so Mm -hmm. in our face this past year plus for everyone, you know? And so I think that that's one thing that's really come out as somewhat of a silver lining is that we're just getting more comfortable talking about it, you know, and and places and platforms that never would even breathe the word of things like anxiety and depression are now really talking about it and putting it out there. So what are your thoughts on the stigma of it all. And and was that something that you felt? I know that luckily you had a mom that, you know, just dove right in and we're like, we're gonna get to the bottom of this. There's no shame in this. But is stigma something that you felt? Did you feel any of the stigma from having, you know, close family, like even your father um, struggling with mental health or, or from yourself? Or what was your experience with that? Totally. I think, yeah, it's so interesting. It was an interesting dynamic growing up, you know, in a household with my mom where stigma was so not present, but then growing up in a world where it's so omnipresent is like, it was a very strange thing. But ultimately, I mean, she, I, I've been in therapy since I was seven. My mom put me in therapy at seven and I attribute so much of my ability to articulate my own experience and to truly understand my own experience and have conversations like this and have a podcast where I can talk about mental health to being in therapy from such a young age. And, and, um, you know, obviously that's such a privilege and, and such a resource that so many don't have access to, which is, you know, something that I, I hope will change as, as the stigma gets lifted and it becomes more of a conversation. But I found so much help and power in that in my own personal life. But then as I got older, was kind of shocked to be met with, with the stigma that does exist in the world. And I think kind of the first interaction I had with that was with my stepdad and, and his family and who I'm like so close with. And I love, they're my family. You know, I consider them to be my siblings. And 
Um, they all have a very different understanding of mental health and what it looks like now than they did when, when you know, we were kids and, and when my stepdad was younger, but I had grown up in a household where I, like, I was so sensitive and struggled a lot with anxiety. And my mom was so understanding of that. And they hadn't really encountered that in their family. So it was a lot of, they were kind of regurgitating like what they had learned from the stigma, which is like, oh, if you're overly emotional, like, are you really sensitive? You need to calm down and like, stop feeling that way. You're anxious. Like you need to take a deep breath and then we're going to move on. You know, like it's, or the, the thing that I, that I always come back to. Yeah. Like just get it together. And like, right. Exactly. And the thing, the thing that I always come back to is like, I would cry a lot because that's something that I would have. It happens to me when I'm anxious is like, that's, that's how I externalize. Like, I don't think of it as a bad thing. It's, it's totally the way that I externalize. And it would be like, stop crying, stop crying, stop crying. And I was like, I can't, <laughs> like, I don't, it's the opposite of what, like, I need to do this to externalize what I'm feeling right now. So that was kind of like my, my initial experience with stigma, but, but it taught me a lot. Like looking back, it, it taught me a lot about, you know, I don't fault anyone for any of that. It's just, it was just an interesting understanding of like how stigma manifests and then how seeing kind of their arc of how they've experienced their own mental health issues and learned about their own mental health has changed the way that they approach it. I think that's so true for the most part, like especially the people that love us. So I like, I've shared this before, but you know, whenever I am in a state of worry or anxiety or just like any state of anything that's not positive, which by mm-hmm. the way, happens every day. Um, right. I, I'm a human and I have many, many emotions and I was a very, and I am a very highly sensitive person. I was as a kid, I continue to be as an adult and I very much so as a mom. Mm-hmm. And I really like sort of err towards, if I were to err towards the side of anything, it would definitely be anxiety. Um, and since becoming a mom that has definitely increased and over this past 12 plus months, it has even more deepened and increased. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've it's always been somewhat in control, but when things start to go haywire uh, or like I start to lose control in certain areas, my like I'm prone to being more anxious than anything. Totally. And so as that happens, the people that love me the most, like people that have the best intentions, you know, they're like, but aren't you supposed to like, isn't this just like what you do for a living? Right, like right, right. sort of completely not on purpose, but invalidating any experience that I may have that's like less than ideal mm-hmm. because this is what I do for a living. And I'm right. like, that's exactly why I have this experience because I do this for a living. And I try to share with people all the time that being an optimist is actually not someone that's positive all the time. It's actually like the mm-hmm. opposite. It's someone mm-hmm. that actually is very aware of the setbacks and the roadblocks, but you know, um, they know they can overcome them. Then they know they're temporary, but they just don't know, even if they don't know how or when. And so it's this idea of, of really like leaning into struggle that I think is really uncomfortable sometimes for people and with the best intentions. But I've definitely had that stigma, I feel like, on myself as a young girl and a preteen and a teenager of being too Mm -hmm. sensitive. And sort of this idea that sensitive is this bad thing. It means that we're not in control of ourselves. Especially when you struggle with anxiety, sensitivity takes on a very different meaning. Yes, 100%. And sort of like as if in those moments, like this misconception that you have the ability to turn it on and turn it off. Like, just stop, you know, stop crying. And the floodgates open. And and you're right. Oftentimes that's actually part of the healing. Like that's how you get through it. And Mm -hmm. like you, you actually need the opposite is someone to just be like, go on, (laughs) like just (laughs) cry it out. Like let it, let it out. You know, and not to mention, I think for in your experience as well, like we, we can't discount that you've actually also been through a lot of grief Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. compounded grief you know, mm-hmm. on top of, of a lot else. And so, and I'm sure like, I, I'm sure a lot of people have heard like sometimes grief, you know, it, it's like this heavy weight that we carry and sometimes you're carrying it really well. And that doesn't mean right. it's not there. You've built muscles that it doesn't feel that heavy, like your shoulders can carry it. And other times, like literally 
you know, in the middle of nowhere at some, like you could be at a restaurant and a waiter could ask you, you know, what, what you'd like for lunch. And the, the weight is so heavy. It's just like, you can't hold it anymore. And so I think it seems to be this, it's an ongoing process. And I think that I really appreciate how transparent and open you are about all that. And not to mention, I'm sure that if you had had more conversations in an open way or you were able or privy to or to listen to at 12, you may have been a little more aware that that was panic and what that was and where it might come from. I had a panic attack, one panic attack once. That's mm-hmm. it. And I was, I was driving. I was, I think I was 17 and I was driving on the freeway and I was, my parents were out of town. And I remember I called my grandma and I was like, I pulled over on the freeway and I was Been like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I think I'm going to, like, I think something's happening to me and I think I'm going to die. Like I, something's happening to my heart. And then mm-hmm. once that started, I think I probably read somewhere that like your left side, start, I was like, my left arm's going numb. Like I just, right. I, I can't breathe. And so I, we went in, um, you know, to urgent care and, or to the emergency room and like right away after a few tests, they're like, that's anxiety. And mm-hmm. it was like, I, I think I had had one other in a movie theater. I was like mm-hmm. really claustrophobic in a movie. And I haven't had one since, but I think it was really important that really early on in that process at 17, someone actually told me that it was anxiety. Right. And and it did feel like this weight of like, oh, well, then it's not anything serious, right? Like nothing's wrong with you physically. It's just anxiety. So get it under control. And it right. felt like- you control it. Yeah. You right. There's right. nothing wrong with you. It's just anxiety. Right. That's the part right. that I think um, really kind of, you know, exacerbates the stigma. Um, totally. Which is sort of like, oh, phew, you know, everyone can relax. There's nothing wrong. It's just anxiety. And she right. can she can turn that off, you know, like, and then it just becomes like, you need to learn how to work better with stress. Totally. You know? So, <laughs> yeah. So I think that these type of conversations are are so important. And then, you know, your experience, especially as you you brought up before, like you've also had to experience this in a very public way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder how that felt for you pressure-wise. I know your dad was so and continues to be so beloved. Um, so mm-hmm. many people joined in on the loss and the mourning and the grief. And was there comfort in that? Or was that like really weird and awkward and made it worse? Like just that so many people were talking about your family, um, your father, you know, or was it both? Was it like, wow, like it feels like a lot of people are joining in and my grief, amazing. He's touched so many people or like, I just wish Mm -hmm. I could go through this without everybody else. Definitely a as my therapist says, a both and situation. (laughs) Um, There's so much that, you know, touches me and that I love and appreciate about his impact on other people, especially, you know, I've I've had so many people tell me over the last few years, like your dad's music saved my life. I was struggling with depression. I was struggling with suicidal ideation. Like I was in this really difficult circumstance and his music and his, you know, like the, the emotion of what he expresses in his music has helped so many people. And that like is, you know, I, I love, I love that that's um, something that people can, can take away from that. And it's like, it means so much to me and speaks so much to, to the healing power of like music and art that, that my dad and I really related on, but I think it added just the public nature of it added this really confusing layer to grief, which is already such a confusing thing. And, and I really appreciate, you know, what you brought up about relating it to physical health. And, and the thing that I talk about when it comes to stigma is like, I've had a lot of conversations with people who do struggle with like stigma, even around their own mental health. And the thing that I always relate it to is like, everyone has mental health the same way everyone has physical health. And at some point in their life, you're going to, in some point in your life, you're going to struggle with your physical health. Something's going to happen or you're predisposed to struggling with it and you address it. And you don't feel like if you went, if you, what you said, if you broke your arm, you wouldn't feel shameful about going to the hospital because you broke your arm, you know? And so it's, it's a, it's, I think of it so similarly, but because I think there's so much stigma that exists around suicide specifically, yes, that it being kind of a public conversation and public knowledge was a very strange situation, especially like meeting people that kind of knew about my biggest trauma before they, you know, knew anything about me before they'd even seen my face. And, and 
it definitely added a confusing layer, but I think there's also, it's something that a lot of people deal with when they lose a loved one to suicide or when, you know, if they've, they've attempted suicide and people know that about them. But what I wanted to say too, about the physical thing is like, you said this so perfectly with a physical ailment or a physical condition, there's like a clear timeline of like, okay, you get your cast off in six weeks. And then, you know, like that's, that's something that people can conceive of, but because grief is so nonlinear, like that was the thing that I had, especially, you know, traumatic grief, not all grief is traumatic, but all trauma has an element of grief. And so dealing with traumatic grief, like people had a very difficult time helping, especially, you know, being in a high school environment, like recognizing why I was totally seemed okay for like eight months. And then it was after that, that I had to stop coming to school. And then I, like, I was like, I can't do this anymore. And why, you know, I, it's not, I don't consider myself, well, I've healed from it. You know, it, it goes in waves. And um, that's something that I think, because there is this stigma that exists around it, people don't talk about it and people don't understand what grief, especially traumatic grief looks like and how it continues to persist through your life. That's so true. And, you know, the rise of teen suicide has been increasing as mm-hmm. you probably are aware of. And mm-hmm. I think that another thing that is so important that kind of goes against, I think, our own intuition as parents or educators or people that are around young teens is that we often have this intuition to just not talk about it. And I've heard right. people or parents say like, well, I didn't want to talk about it because I don't want to put it in their head. And all the research that I have read really like points towards actually the opposite. And what's really important and what often saves a teen's life is having the tough and uncomfortable conversation. And especially Mm. when there, there is a suicide that happens, you know, in a teen's life with someone that was close to them, or even if they weren't that close, but something happens in school or in a town, you know, being able to sit down and have this really uncomfortable conversation and say, how are you feeling? Do you ever have suicidal thoughts? Like, what did this suicide mean for you? Are you okay? Rather than, I think the intuition of a lot of people is kind of like, well, they seem fine and I don't want to bring it up because I just don't want to like, I don't want to talk about it. I want to trigger them. I don't want to, yeah, totally, totally. In your experience, because this is something that you did go through and multiple times within a year as a teen and then had your own experience with suicidal ideation and thoughts, were there people talking to you about it. And it sounds like thankfully you were in therapy at a younger age and sort of had this Mm -hmm. support system, which again, I just wish so many more of our kids did. And hopefully that is what's coming. But what worked for you? What could have been better? And what do you really suggest as a teen that's actually gone through it? What kind of conversations or how how do you think it's best to bring it up to really, to be more preventative? Mm -hmm. Totally. Thank you for asking that because it is, I mean, the, the numbers, especially over COVID of, yes. of how, um, how much the attempts have, have increased are really startling. But even though I, I'd been in therapy my whole life and it's, you know, something that I, I didn't feel shame necessarily talking about, like with my mom and with my therapist, I felt a lot of fear talking about it with my mom and therapist. And I also didn't know, like, if I tell my therapist that like, I'm afraid I'm going to kill myself. Like, am I going to get put in a psych ward? Like, I, you know, it's just like, you don't know. I don't know. I don't know what happens. I don't know what the reaction is. And it's something that's a really like, especially, you know, telling my mom like that terrifies her, you know, and the the last thing I want to, and which is so understandable. And the last thing I want to do is put her in a situation where she's afraid. And then, you know, I tell my therapist and my therapist is like, oh, you need to be sent away somewhere. Like I, you know, it's just, even though I'd been in therapy my whole life, like, I think because the stigma exists, like there's a really fundamental lack of understanding of like, what do you do when someone you love experiences suicidal ideation? But what do you do when you experience suicidal ideation? It's like, I don't want to tell anyone because I don't know what's going to happen. And so I think that like not knowing what the protocol is, was something that made it harder. And I think, I don't know if it's like implementing some kind of program in schools or some kind of like family program or just, you know, whether it's talking about it more in daily life would change this. But I think having some kind of understanding of like, okay, this is what happens if you're, you know, and and obviously it's different case by case, but like, no one's going to freak out on you. No one's going to like ship you away. And if I'd known that, I think I would have told someone sooner. Mm. And then when I eventually told my therapist, she was like, do you have a 
plan. Right. And I was like, no, I'm just afraid that this is something that I'm going to do. And she was like, okay, well, that's, you know, if you had a plan, we would approach this differently. And that would also be understandable and okay. But because you don't, let's just unpack it and let's talk about like why you're feeling this way. And, and, you know, part of it is like a chemical imbalance in your brain and part of it is circumstantial and, and part of it's emotional and like, it's very understandable. And the thing that she said that really like helped me so much was like almost everyone feels some kind of suicidal thought or suicidal ideation at some point in their life. And I was like, oh, so I'm not, you know, I'm, you're not going to put me in an ambulance and I'm not going to see anyone, you know, for months. You know, I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. And then being able to have that conversation with her and she helped me talk to my mom about it. That was like, mom, I need you to know this so that I don't feel afraid of it. And, and so that we can work on it together. And, um, you know, for the sake of, of openness and honesty and, and being safe, like this is something that I'm struggling with. And like, I don't have a plan and I don't want you to be afraid. I, I am just feeling fear around this circumstance and like, let's talk about it together with my therapist and, and let's kind of create, you know, what feels best for Lily. Is it best that like, she doesn't be left alone for long periods of time? Or is it best that like you bring it up with her and check in with how she's feeling? Like it's so individuated. And I get, you know, the, the idea like you could have a plan that works for everyone is not possible, but like, when you're able to converse with the people that are important in your life and then even like bring that into your therapist, like bring the person that you would, you know, your mom into your, with your therapist or whatever, or talk to your therapist about it privately. Like that was a really inarticulate way of saying, be communicative about it. And that's what helped me. <laughs> no, that's exactly what the research says. That is mm-hmm. what, you know, I advocate for is this idea where I try to encourage people to, you have to be able to have the uncomfortable conversations. And I totally. think that what it sounds like, which is very consistent to all of that, is that because you had someone to talk to, because you mm-hmm. had someone to explain what your thoughts were, you were able to come up with a plan, actually, a preventative plan. Um, right, 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 right. And like a place that if you were start to feel those feelings again, or they became a little more specific you felt like that foundation was there and you knew who to go to and you knew you knew what to do. There was a plan and it was something that was this open door between your mom and your therapist that I think is so important. And again, not everybody has, but we have to get to that point where we will have it more if we just be that person for someone else. And I think that yeah. requires a lot of ourselves having to work on being uncomfortable because the the majority is is like innately within us that is something that is very uncomfortable ourselves right. to sort of open and to kind of uh you know people get weird people get right. really weird <laughs> about that and oftentimes right. i think what people are looking for when they are sharing a struggle is they're not necessarily looking for someone to fix it they're looking for someone to listen right. totally 100% yeah And I'm just like, I'm so proud of you for being so open and transparent because, you know, it's not just the brilliance and beauty of making sure that other people don't feel alone. That in itself is so huge. There's so many people that are that are having the thoughts and going through similar things that that you had or maybe continue to have at times. And and just hearing you say that will help them and make them feel like, number one, they're not alone, but also like an example of someone that actually could be preventative and proactive. And there's like other ways. And you're right. right like within the mental health world, like I think one of the things that's the most stigmatized is suicide. Like right. you can't get even more, like that's the that's the top of the hierarchy of mm-hmm. stigma. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it, it just, this conversation is just so important. I, I like literally think this is probably the most important conversation in all five of the <laughs> seasons so far of this podcast is <laughs> just talking about suicide, really saying it, talking about it and talking about it with a young person that literally experienced it by proxy of someone and people very, very close to them, but also experienced ideation themselves. Right. I appreciate that so much. Thank you for saying that. And I've received outside of, you know, therapy and, and psychological treatment, like the thing that's been most helpful to me is hearing other people talk about their experiences and, and feeling 
so validated in that and also feeling so much of the fear dissipate because, you know, the thing with mental health is that everyone that goes through it thinks they're the only person that's ever experienced it. And that's like totally was my experience. And it's, that's kind of the psychological thing that happens, but the more we're able to have conversations like this and the more people are able to talk about it, the more that fear dissipates. And that's what's so important to me. Can you share any like every day? It sounds like therapy has been really helpful for you Mm -hmm. um, in getting to know sort of your own self and develop some of your own tools. But is there anything or things that you do on a daily basis, big or small, that like keep you connected to yourself, keep you sort of proactive with working out your mental health muscle? Are there things that you do every day to sort of go through life in a way that you feel that you are managing? Totally. That's, it's funny that you say toolbox because that's like, as long as I can remember, that's my, been my mom's thing. It's like, you need to create a toolbox. And that's as, a, you know, hearing that growing up, I was like, whatever. Your mom like, sounds so really smart. But she's, and amazing. she's perfect. <laughs> she is. <laughs> like, it's exactly, no, it's exactly as perfect, as close to perfect as a person can get. Oh. It was, it's so true. The thing that like has been most difficult for me to accept, but also the most helpful is it's so important to work on building those skills of like self-soothing and relaxation when you're not in times of crisis. I just was talking about this with, with my therapist as well. She said, you can't teach yourself to swim when you're drowning. And that was my biggest issue for so long as I would only do things like meditation or like bilateral stimulation, like tapping when I was in the midst of a panic attack or in the midst of some kind of episode. And that made me associate those things with feeling really heightened and feeling really dysregulated. And especially as a teenager like or a kid, the last thing that you want to do when you're feeling good is like have to be thinking about the times when you're feeling bad and having to do things like that. And I just want to be a person, like I'd be a child and not have to worry about stuff like this. But it truly like when I am feeling less heightened and less dysregulated, doing things like the bilateral stimulation or doing different breathing exercises taking time away from technology is like super huge for me. Journaling is also a thing that's really huge for me, but making sure that I'm practicing those things outside of those times are what helps me actually move through those times. Because if I'm just, if I start trying to meditate when I'm having a panic attack, like if I'm, you know, focusing on my breathing while I can't breathe, it's like, that's, mm-hmm. it's not going yes. <laughs> to work. So that's been, that's what's been most helpful for me for sure. Can you just really quickly explain to people how you use bilateral stimulation? Totally. I, I'm obviously not an expert by any means and I won't explain it perfectly. But what I was taught was that it stimulates both sides of the brain and like helps to recenter your nervous system. So what I do is like typically I'll cross my arms with one hand on each shoulder and kind of like every two seconds do my right hand, left hand, right hand, left hand. And there are also, you can do it like, if I'm feeling anxious in class or something, like I'll just tap my feet, like right foot, left foot um, with both feet on the ground, legs uncrossed, or even like taking your, your thumb and your pointer finger and kind of extending them and then just tapping like your collarbone is also another thing that I do. But the foot thing has been really helpful because that's like, you can do that in, mm-hmm. in Under um, a desk. everyday situations. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So can you share a little bit about your podcast and sort of what your hope for it is? Maybe who's a dream guest for you on the podcast? Um, totally. And then also your your app. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can find the podcast on Apple or Spotify, Mind Wide Open. Um, and I also post it on my, on my Instagram at Lily Cornell Silver. I post it as IGTV so you can see people's faces. I mean, with, but the goal, like it's already gotten so much bigger and so much more traction than I was ever anticipating. The goal of it was just destigmatization. You know, like that was, that was the, if I could make one person or five people feel heard and feel validated in their experience. And if that one person was me, like, that's fine. (laughs) That's all I wanted. But it seems that a lot of people have really resonated and that's so, so, so important to me. So, you know, as I feel like the goal has been accomplished and because it's kind of a living thing that will still exist, even when the podcast ends, like when I stop making new episodes, it's something people can come back to and continue to feel validated in. And then moving forward, I am working with this app called Quilt, which is an audio only um, social media app, like very similar to Clubhouse in its in its 
function, but that it's all about wellness and mental health and spirituality and like love and relationships and career. And it's truly like, I was at a time where I was like off also. I hate social media. I was like, social media is the absolute worst thing. There's no redeeming qualities. Like I just watched the social dilemma. I was like, this is the worst thing in the world. Like I'm throwing my phone into the ocean. And then I came upon Quill. I was like, oh, I remember why it can be good and why people use it. And it's it's such an incredible space. Like I, I have a weekly room that I'm opening on there. It's just like real-time conversation about making meaning from loss and grief, which has mm-hmm. like been so powerful for me. But it's something that functions, like it functions at all hours of the day. Like you can open a room at any time. People open rooms at any time to talk about anything from like people will gui- do guided meditations on there. But then there's also these incredible, you know, spiritual and energy workers or like licensed psychologists that would normally be very difficult to get access to that. Like you can just be in a room with them and like 10 other people and ask them specific questions. So that's like a, as far as tools go, like I love seeing things like that that are completely accessible. Yes. And that's that's what I wanted to do for my podcast too. And exactly what you're doing is create something that's totally accessible that anyone can anyone can come back to or anyone can utilize at any point in time. So yeah. I love that. Those are really, really important tools. And I'm just, I'm so proud of the work that you're doing on yourself and also how you're giving to so many other people. Honestly, I think it's Thank you. brave, it's authentic, it's so human. And I couldn't be more proud to to be talking to you. I, I just am I'm a big fan of your work. Thank you so much. That means it means so much coming from you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. So the last thing that we do on looking up, um, if we were together, you would be picking a card from my things are looking up optimism deck of cards. But since oh, we're gorgeous. not, I'm just picking you a random one now which will Beautiful. be your homework for today. Okay. Okay, this is your card. You got the rainbow I love one. it already. <laughs> Embrace vulnerability. Go ahead, name one thing out loud that makes you feel vulnerable or exposed. Now place your hand on your heart and think about how strong you are to have been able to mindfully and uncover this beautiful self-truth. Beautiful. So you don't have to answer that right now. That's for you to take with you just to think about one thing that uh, cool. makes you feel vulnerable and exposed. Thank you so much (laughs) for coming on Looking Up. And I can't wait to see more of what you do. I am going to follow along and hopefully we can chat again in the future and, and collaborate. Absolutely. I would love that. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Our theme music is Me and Sade by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism. If you or a loved one are experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, you are not alone and help is available. Please consider calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255.